I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Abyss. In 1984, director James Cameron thrilled audiences with his vision of the future, The Terminator. In 1986, he created the science fiction masterpiece, Aliens. This summer, he will take you into a world no man has ever seen before. The James Cameron season continues with his fourth film, and definitely his most infamously troubled shoot, 1989's The Abyss. Three years after Aliens, and two before Terminator 2 Judgment Day, this was shot almost entirely underwater in a massive tank. Crack open a cold one, people. This one's gonna take us down. It's a strange story and takes an abrupt left turn at the third act after a very long claustrophobic second act. It's also really, really hard to find in any decent quality. This was released on Laserdisc back in the early 90s and Laserdisc was like a format that only uh, Patrick Bateman from American Psycho could afford. <laughs> if, you, if your parents had Laserdisc, well done on living in the nicest part of town. Uh, you know, the, most of us at that era were just happy to get VHS. Like Sharon, when, when did you first get video? Uh, we got our first VHS machine in 1987, possibly eight, early 88. So like the year this was filmed. Mm. See what I mean? And also widescreen VHS was brand new. This was one of the flagship titles launched on widescreen like they were they were like imagine if your screen actually showed what you could see at the cinema it was this and die hard 2 die harder directed by rennie harlan so die hard 2 is not troublesome it's just you know nowhere near as good as the original die hard but fox were trying to make a big deal out of it and well done for fox for actually pushing forwards and, and su suggesting that a widescreen version of a film was Something people Something would people want. Something people would want, yeah. <laughs> they don't all want to see it in a square. Yeah, as I recall, um, the Star Wars trilogy followed not long after because George was like, oh, hey, we can put them out in widescreen again. Put them out again. You know what, George? Put them out again, please. <laughs> but yeah, it came out on Laserdisc uh, in the early 90s and there was a much celebrated special edition which uh, came out afterwards. This was around the time of uh, Blade Runner, the director's cut, and um, the Aliens director's uh, the extended cut was for TV. They tended to do that on TV, not in the UK, where they wanted to just cram films in as, soon, as quick as possible and then cut. They were like, oh, you don't want to watch Die Hard 2. Here's the news. And they would interrupt the film I for ages with the news. I was just about to say, yeah, in 
the UK, you would get the film broken in half because it was time for the news. And I was like, I don't remember this bit where R2's scanning for Luke in the snow because they'd cut it out of the TV broadcast, which, by the way, was on ITV, so they kept cutting away for adverts. And that's why they wanted them long in America because... If you stretched a movie out to like four hours, imagine all the advertising slots you could get in there. So that's why they asked for longer versions of Superman and a complete like chronological version of Godfather parts one and two that uh, got put together, TV oh version. Oh my God, I can't imagine watching that in 15 minute chunks with breaks for adverts. It would drive me nuts. But uh, yeah, the uh, the special edition of The Abyss, which we will definitely be talking about because that's the version we always watch. Um, and I've, I can tell already that certain abyss purists are going, no, theatrical all the way. And it's fun that we will talk about the merits of just the theatrical version. But uh, I mean, like even Cameron seems to favor the theatrical version. So you're not alone on that well, one. Well, it's not butt numbing. It is a bit. But anyway, <laughs> it came out on DVD. They did what a lot of early DVDs did, which is to take the Laserdisc transfer and just plonk it onto a DVD disc. And unfortunately, that was in the days of non-anamorphic pictures. And if you've got, like, you may have heard me lament the last versions of the Star Wars trilogy, the original editions ever released on DVD, were this scenario as well. This is where, if you can imagine your big widescreen telly, now put a little rectangle in the middle. And now surround that rectangle with charcoal, not black, because this was DVD and this was technically Laserdisc, and Laserdisc could not manage the kind of black levels that Blu-ray, and certainly not 4K, could manage. So black equals charcoal. So what you're watching is a little letterbox in the middle of your screen. It's appalling and blurry and low resolution. It Oh, it's disgusting! And that's the version of The Abyss that's available on DVD. And that's if you have, at this stage, a wide flat screen TV. If you're watching on an old square CRT TV. Who is? <laughs> I know, but some people might have been. I believe there's a full screen version of The Abyss available on DVD where it would be sort of more of just a square where they'd chop off either side. And obviously this was 235 to 1, so you're losing a lot then. And there the abyss stayed in terms of transfer. So you've got the DVD and that's it. No Blu-ray, no 4K, no purchasable HD digital version, no HD DVD, no UMD, just the Laserdisc and a few rare HD TV screenings. Occasional fleeting presence on Netflix. Not anymore. And a series of cryptic suggestions that it might be released in high definition, just like True Lies, only it never did. Apparently right now you can rent it via Sky in the UK, and you can stream it via Prime or Paramount in America. So that's something. As the director of several of the highest grossing films of all time, this baffles me. But knowing that he's a perfectionist would explain why Jim Cameron would not want anyone to see what he views as an inferior version of the film that he and everyone else worked hard on. His stipulation was, this is not getting released unless I oversee it. And he just hasn't found the time to oversee it. He's been too busy building Avatar movies. Yeah. What I would posit, however, is that he 
was so disaffected by the lukewarm response from audiences that Jim, on some level, sees every version of the abyss as inferior and disappointing and to be kept away from people, just like George Lucas in his original trilogy, now entrusted to an indifferent Disney with their horrible 4K transfers of Empire in particular. A New Hope on Disney Plus is pretty great, by the way. Return of the Jedi doesn't look as good as the 2010 Blu-ray. But Disney last uh, October, I think, 2020, uh, announced that they would no longer be releasing 4K discs. So, yeah, after buying all the MCU films in 4K and being disappointed by at least half of them, I was like, well, that's a great big fuck you. I guess I'll just be getting them in Blu-ray format from now on, even if I'm allowed. That is a huge blow to the format if, if a, a studio as big as Disney isn't using it anymore. Well, as far as Disney are concerned, why would they even want the discs out there? They want us with our subscription to, to Disney+. Disney Plus. Plus, yeah. They want to go back to the days when they were able to do limited runs of hard uh, formats yeah. that people would pick up at ridiculous expense because they were only going to be available for a few months. Do they? I think they just want loads of people on Disney Plus and also paying to see movies early. We shall see. But yeah, I regret getting the uh, MCU in 4K. They are not astounding. The Blu-ray versions in most cases are better. Uh, although, um, there are certain films like Moana we have in uh, Blu-ray form, but if we watch it on Disney+, Plus, it's amazing to look at, because that's the 4K version, and they really, really made that look amazing. And the sound on that is, is Dolby Atmos. Uh, Moana is kind of like the nice version. I mean, the Moana is related to the Abyss in that it has the liquid spear. The sea is personified as being alive in the way that it was done here. These effects were pioneering. Side note, Disney are adding the ability to see certain MCU movies with IMAX sections restored. So the aspect ratio may change and the clarity and resolution may take a huge spike if you've got the right kind of TV, at least for certain scenes. I'm very excited about that. The Dark Knight in 4K, for example, has IMAX scenes restored and they are phenomenal. Step in the right direction, Disney. Now do The Empire Strikes Back for the children who've never seen it look amazing. But this is an enormous shame that people can't see The Abyss, considering the many folks out there who genuinely care about The Abyss. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a cult. I, I don't understand how a movie this huge, a blockbuster this expensive, and from someone this massive in the industry can have a cult following. It doesn't make any sense. Like, unless the film is straight up bad, and it's not. It's a good film. This one caused a storm of positive reactions when I mentioned that we were gearing up for it on Twitter. We got loads of people going, oh my god, The Abyss is fantastic. I love that film so much. And I think Brendan said it best, which is the shoot, ugh, the film, chef's kiss. Luckily for us, Kyle Reese came back from the future with a really great HD transfer of the extended cut and a strangely greenish but still pretty great 1080p theatrical cut just so that we could deliver you this long, long, patiently long-awaited show for you. We wanted to wait until you could all get a copy for yourselves or all see it on Disney somewhere. 
but that's just not going to happen, or at least it's not going to happen until I release this and say it's not going to happen, and then, via Sod's Law, it will actually happen. Perfectionist Jim decrees that nobody shall see his abyss, and we absolutely decry the idea of watching a legitimately bought DVD version of the shitty Laserdisc transfer. It flattens, crushes, and murders this gorgeously photographed film, so we are actively telling you not to watch The Abyss in the only available hard copy format. Don't watch it on DVD, my god. But do listen to the making of it. We can tell you about it. This is, this is a white whale of a film for me. I have waited so long for this to actually be available so we could do a show, and it just it's not happening. So let's just head into the maelstrom in search of Moby Dick, shall we? Harpoons at the ready, folks. The premise of this film starts simple. Starts simple. It's a Bond opening. Like, it's almost exactly the opening of um, The Spy Who Loved Me. There's a US submarine that encounters something strange underwater, and it sinks with all crew on board. And America wants to recover it before the Soviets, so the Soviets are sending their submarines, and America's like, nah, man, we gotta get our submarine and what was on board back. So they enlist the aid of a deep drilling team who operate at great depth underwater. They are led by Bud Brigman, played by Ed Harris. Originally, Cameron conceived this as a team of scientists who uh, were on the ocean floor. And then he figured that regular audiences wouldn't like a team of scientists, so he made it blue collar. And uh, I think he was kind of proven right by the fact that nobody went to see Sunshine, but everybody went to see Armageddon. Because Michael Bay went, blue-collar oil rig workers, you say. Mm, that will be mine. So they're all salt-of-the-earth blue-collar Americans. They don't get on with the uptight SEAL team sent to recover the sub. And as it turns out, it's nuclear payload. The SEAL team are being overseen by Dr. Lindsay Brigman, played by Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, who designed the rig that they're all on, and who is also Bud's estranged wife. The two fought a lot back when they were together, and they commence that again today as a hurricane draws in on the surface. They investigate the sub and tensions mount as the head of the SEAL team, Coffee, played by Michael Biehn, uh, Kyle Reese from The Terminator, uh, Corporal Hicks from Aliens, starts to suffer from the effects of high-pressure nervous syndrome as a result of being this far underwater in an environment he is not the least bit used to. Is, he, is it a SEAL team? Because they do operate underwater. Um, well, yeah, but not this far. That's the, Part of the point of this rig is that it's the only one that operates this deep. Okay. Michael Bean usually plays a decent fellow. He is not decent here. This is important. Since he is uncommunicative, uptight, secretive, controlling, and aggressive, this is bad for everyone. Under normal circumstances, that's his personality. Mm. This, the, the high-pressure nervous syndrome basically exacerbates and intensifies all of that. And since part of his mission is to recover a warhead from the downed sub, it gets worse. Also, there's aliens. I'm going to leave that as a footnote, because that's how it is in the movie. At least in the theatrical version. Also, there's aliens. <sighs> Okay, so uh, there's technically three acts to this one. There's Act 1, Investigating the Sub. Act 2 is Waiting. And Act 3 is a deep dive. 
At the end of Act 1, the crane that was holding them aloft and connecting them with the surface collapses because of a storm, and so they're stranded on the ocean floor, precipitating the waiting. Now, Act 2 lasts, um, I think in both versions, uh, approximately 700 hours. As far as I'm concerned, I will say right away, the wrong parts of this movie got cut out for the uh, theatrical release. The theatrical one was cut down to two hours. Uh, I think like 2.20 maybe. Okay, so, that, so it's lost between half an hour and 50 minutes. Yeah, because the, uh, the special edition is nearly three hours and you feel it. But what the special edition reinstates is Cold War tensions. This whole movie, if you've only ever seen the theatrical version, actually had an undercurrent of East versus West, America versus Russia tensions, and just uh, it had arguments that alluded to that. It had stops and breaks to, to look at the news and what was happening on the surface, and it has a whole extra part of the ending which was chopped out for theatrical release. And you might assume that it was the studios who got cold feet and were like, no, we're not certain about this, we don't like this weird ending. But no, this, this was Cameron. This was Cameron's decision. He, in his own words, he decided that rather than cutting bits and bobs here and there, his way of doing things was to cut out subplots. And in the case of Aliens, it was to cut out the subplot of uh, Newt and uh, Ripley being connected as mother and daughter, in that one's lost a mother, one's lost a daughter, and that is absolutely key to Alien's strengths. And in the case of Terminator 2, it was removing the section where the T-800 starts to learn. They reset his processor so that he can actually act more human, which again, to me, is key, key to why Terminator 2 is fantastic. Side note, that scene and one other with the T-1000 employed Linda Hamilton's twin sister, Leslie Hamilton, to perform as her double. And Leslie sadly died recently, at the age of 63. Extremely sad. This may be what shaped his decision about removing the Cold War subplots then, because apparently the studio were maybe subtly, maybe less so, leaning on him to trim back the Lindsay and Bud story. And as far as he was concerned, that was the heart of it. And he was going to be damned before he was going to cut any of that out. Yeah. So, um, Bud and Lindsay, played by uh, Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, for a start, just watching this every time, I, I, I get a kind of a pining feeling in my uh, stomach. For the films we never got to see Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio in, she was in Scarface. Do you ever see Scarface? Yes. Um, she plays his sister, and he's like super territorial. He doesn't want her going out with this guy. He doesn't want her going out with that guy. He beats up her boyfriends, and eventually she goes crazy, like Ophelia in Hamlet. She's like, "Well, what do you want, Scarface? What do you want, you Tony? Do you want to fuck me, Tony? Is that how it is?" And it's a tragedy. And then years later, because that was the early eighties with Brian De Palma, did she get a, a some kind of award nomination for that? Let's go to the phones. It got a Razzie Award for Worst Director Brian De Palma. Yikes. Okay. It was nominated. Maybe not then. And the Turkish Film Critics Association nominated it for Best Foreign Film. It came fourth place. Right. So this is 1983 with Scarface. So six years later, she's in The Abyss. And then two years later, she's in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which we've already covered and we love, uh, as Maid Marian. And that's pretty much it. That was Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio in Hollywood big films. She was in The Colour of Money, that's what she got the Oscar nomination for. Ah, 
Is that the uh, pseudo sequel to The Hustler? Yes. With uh, Tom Cruise uh, playing pool. I've never actually seen that. That's um, Scorsese. Mm. Yeah, we should probably see that. If nothing else for Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. Now, Ed Harris has had a great career. He has played character after character, and, and he, he can go to a variety of ranges of serious old man. He always seems quite old. <laughs> like, he's got kind of a dad energy about him going on, but then he can also be cold and cruel, like he is in... Um, uh, and aloof and distant. Yeah, Ed Harris in A History of Violence has this kind of brutal quality to him and this is probably the youngest I've seen him and he reminded me an awful lot of Bruce a younger Bruce Willis hmm. possibly because of the Armageddon parallel as well as that estranged husband and wife bitter clashing that Holly and John engage in in Die Hard he was also in uh, The Right Stuff, which might make you also think of Armageddon, since that slow-motion walk is from The Right Stuff. Mm -hmm. But there's a touch at the beginning, like, they, they argue with each other in a kind of a Cameron-y way, and there's a touch at the beginning, which I really, really like, a visual touch, where she asks him, uh, why are you still wearing your wedding ring? And he says, oh, well, the divorce wasn't finalised, and, you know, just didn't really want to break the habit. And that kind of tells you that he's not quite let, let go of the marriage. Like, they've argued and argued, and they've decided to split up, but he's, on some level, still not letting go. And then, after another argument, he throws it down the toilet uh, into this blue chemical goop, and then immediately thinks better of it and shoves his hand directly in there to fish it out. And then he gets a stained blue hand... And that's a, a visual masterstroke, because every time you see his blue hand, you're reminded of this moment. You're reminded that he's impulsive, but then tries to make things better. You said tries to fix things, mm. and which, again, is kind of dad-like. Mm. Very much so. So you kind of immediately get a, an affection for, for Bud, I think possibly more than Lindsay, who uh, comes across as very hard for most of the way through and then only starts to really... Um, loosen up by the end. Yeah, I think part of that comes down to, first off, the indicator that she is hanging on to the relationship is much more subtle, uh, which is in the fact that she is still calling herself Brigman. She hasn't changed her name, despite the fact that when somebody calls her Mrs. Brigman, she says she hates that. So mm. why hasn't she gone back to her maiden name? She is hanging on to something. This is in opposition to the way that Holly switches her name back to Gennaro, which irritates John McClane, even though this is ostensibly for business reasons and propriety. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. But the, uh, the, the fact that most of the characters, like the characters that we aren't supposed to like, all clearly seem to not get on with Lindsay. Mm. The, um, the the slightly geeky guy in the control room on the uh, the ship that's anchoring the rig. Yeah, he's the one who refers to her as the queen bitch of the universe. No, Chris, Chris Elliott. Which is clearly something he's heard Bud call her. That's, mm. that's why he's repeating it. But then the SEAL team are... Uh, prickly with her because they don't like the idea that she's there to boss them around but then when she gets back down to the rig everybody who's part of that team obviously knows her they know her history with Bud they kind of have some of them seem to have a, a degree of affection for her but they follow Bud's lead in terms of how to treat her so if he's standoffish and and um, scathing of her, then so are they. When he becomes protective and uh, defending of her, then so are they. They really do act like Bud's tail throughout the whole thing. Mm. 
they're lightly characterized, but very few of them uh, have, like, no one's on an arc, no one's on a journey. Mm. Um, Alan, the guy who cares about his rat, probably goes through the most in terms of um, stress, because the rat is repeatedly endangered. Mm. But they, they all, it's quite a big team, and although some of them do get killed off in various action scenes, a lot of them make it through to the end, yeah. which is fairly unusual for the big ensemble action um, casts but all of them seem to bring a particular element of expertise to the project and I think that's one of the things I really like about this is mm. that it is very much everything that happens in this more or less is a team effort although Bud is the head of everything that happens there are things that go on in this that he couldn't do if he didn't have at least two or three other people backing him up mm. And I think one of the miscommunications of this film is that it appears to be positioned as a horror movie. The uh, marketing for it's like sort of a lot of dark and mysterious water with shiny blue lights. And it's James Cameron, so you think aliens. Mm. And, uh, you know, the shots of like divers on their own, you think isolation. And uh, it, or even just the name, The Abyss, it's, it's Nietzschean. It has a... A feeling of like you know what you're going to find down there is terrible. What well, the the reality is, it's actually really quite benevolent, and that's miscommunicated with the marketing. Yeah, and I absolutely remember this coming out and thinking it was a horror movie. Yeah, which means that people going in to get a horror movie will be disappointed, and people staying away because they think it's a horror movie just won't see it. Won't see what is effectively more just like Armageddon, and then they meet aliens. It is honestly a lot closer to Armageddon than anyone would really uh, expect. Mm. It's because <clears throat> it's really just people in technical jeopardy for a lot of its runtime. Mm. Yeah. And technical jeopardy, not that they're threatened by an external force. Yeah. Well, a lot of it comes down to uh, I mean they they set the um the stakes, the pressure, the dangers of, of what is going to sit there for the whole film up in the beginning when the sub crashes. Yeah. The, uh, the way that is framed is you are surrounded by something that's going to kill you. And that kind of overhang is then there for the rest of the movie. Yeah. And honestly, that is kind of paralleled by that Cold War yeah. theme. By that... This feels... By that excised Cold War theme. Exactly. It feels a little bit weird for me um, for this to come from Cameron because he does have a degree of uh, military who are in some of his movies. But Bay is the one who really kind of took that and ran with it. Yeah. But the, the essence of how the military are portrayed in this is that they are not the saviors of the day at all. That they are, in fact... Uh, overly aggressive and paranoid. That's the the big thing mm. that you kind of take away from the military element of this, that the Cold War uh, issue was one largely of paranoia. Any kind of posturing from foreign uh, governments is taken as a direct threat. Any kind of, here's a thing we don't understand or really know what it is yet, it must be a threat. This constant sense of, if it's not in the rule book, then it's a threat and we have to kill it. Hippie, you're going to give that rat a disease. Hi, Lens. Well, well. Mrs. Brigman. Not for long. 
You never did like being called that, did you? Not even when it meant something. Is that one night in flatbed? Yeah, Will. Yeah. Here, say hi. Hey, one night, it's Lindsay. Oh, hi, Lindsay. So what are you doing down here, Hot Rod? You need me? Nobody knows the systems on this rig better than I do. Once you're disconnected from the Explorer, you guys are on your own for however long this storm lasts. I mean, what if something was to happen after the surface support clears off? What would you have done? Wow, you're right. Us poor dumb old boys might have had to think for ourselves. Could have been a disaster. You want to know what I think? Jeez, look where this thing is sent. You want to know what I think? Not particularly. I think you were worried about me. Then that must be it. No, seriously, I think you were. Come on. It's okay. It's okay, you can admit it. I was worried about the rig. I've got over four years invested in this project. Yeah, you only had three years invested in me. Well, you have to have priorities. And the Cold War ended in 1991, so this was like the last moment... Like, the, the special edition came out after the Cold War had ended. So the, the Cold War subtext was finally revealed to the world, après Cold War. Honestly, that makes a lot of sense to me. It is difficult to examine something like that when you're still in the middle of it. I think it's one of the reasons why I get very bristly at the moment when we see things that appear to be uh, touching on pandemic themes. Mm. But I mean, I also feel like he more confidently handled this theme in Terminator 2. And as a result, the studio were, like, because T2 was such a huge hit, they allocated him funds to complete this movie and, I suppose, retackle this subject matter. But thinking about it, there is a remake of this movie. Uh, which handles the theme of trying to communicate with extraterrestrial life and the military fucking everything up and paranoid governments. Anyone? Aliens? One of our best shows. Oh. Uh... Arrival. Ah, uh, yeah. It is remarkably similar to Arrival, and Arrival is a realization of every clumsy theme that was attempted in this. So the two actually worked in concert with one another. You could watch The Abyss for a broad, tasty but massive hamburger meal version of what Arrival is trying to convey, and then Arrival as kind of a, a cold after-dinner mint where you kind of digest how Denis Villeneuve, a very different kind of director handles these themes at both a removed distance and painfully intimate. Well, Arrival hones in very much on the acts of communication, mm. which in this are simply a snippet of the big picture. Yeah. Now we're going to talk um, throughout this a lot about what actually happened uh, behind the scenes, because it's actually more interesting than the movie. The... Um, production of this it sounds like a living hell in something like depending on your phobias this could actually stack up a bunch of things that you completely hate that's like you know with the abyss is not a horror movie but the circumstances with which the abyss were filmed is a horror movie like if you if you um are scared by the descent because of claustrophobia darkness and being trapped and also potentially being savaged all of those things are in the making of the abyss. So first off, there's the drowning rat. 
This scene was cut out of the British version of the uh, Abyss. Um, I, I don't think I saw it until a later edition. And it was a real life, not just rat, but series of five rats being subjected to something called liquid oxygen, which was a test substance that has, even in the interim decades, still not been tested on humans. It's a, it's a breathing fluid, which is an emulsion of oxygen and liquid. It's not actual liquid oxygen, yeah. which is just the compressed gas, which yeah. you can't breathe. What they're demonstrating is, if you try to just breathe regular oxygen, uh, like a diver, down at a certain low, low depth, your lungs would explode? Uh, it, there's something about the, the, um, the pressure between the gas and the uh, surrounding atmosphere because everything is so heavy. Yeah. Either you wouldn't be able to breathe because your lungs can't move properly or just mm. the differential between air pressure inside your body and water pressure outside your body would cause That's the one, yeah. either sickness so, or explosion. So effectively this liquid air would normalise the pressure points. Yes. Okay. So... What that entails is putting a rat in a glass container of pink fluid and holding a cage over it, and the rat, in real life, having mixed feelings about the whole thing. Like, you can see this little guy going, oh, no, 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 no way, and then jerking and jerking as it starts to sort of gasp, and it breathes in the pink fluid, and it's going in and out of its lungs, and it's, it's having to pull harder because it's it's uh, more laborious apparently because they never tested it on humans it's more laborious doing the actual breathing in and out which makes perfect sense because the lungs are designed to breathe in air they yeah. are not designed to breathe in water so you can see this creature twitching and panicking and going through what it thinks its body thinks it's dying and um i think that the, the royal veterinarian said no to this and James, Jim Cameron in the making of was like I don't know why he said no to it I mean was he there does he know that the rat was perfectly fine and I'm like this this is indicative of Jim Cameron observe being in the room while somebody else suffers and a camera is rolling and going okay so the person is or the in this case the five rats are suffering but this is gold he has that thing that certain directors, almost always male directors have, which uh, allows them to go art and then a line and then people underneath. It, what came across, and bearing in mind this footage was filmed some Or in this time case, ago. rats. Yeah, the interview footage was filmed some time ago and I am given to understand that he, he is at least getting better with regards hmm. to this. But we, we've only observed Jim Cameron around that time, so we yeah. have to talk about Jim Cameron then. We have to then. talk about how he was then. But it is worth saying that in later years he mellowed a little and, and said, maybe I and shouldn't have done quite so much this saying, stuff. James, you were being a knob. Stop being a knob, you knob. Um, That's anyway. a very kind way of referring to how he behaved. <laughs> Part of it, apparently, is simply observing other directors doing things differently. Mm. He went to the set of a, a Ron Howard movie and was completely blown away by how nice Ron Howard is to his cast and crew and the fact that he went round going out of his way to compliment people. And Cameron was like, you can do this? I'm going to try that! And has apparently since then been trying to internalise Ron Howard and, and, you know, be a bit more like that. Writes down on his, his uh, notebook, be nice, question mark? 
This is exactly. almost this is like an alien or but, a sociopath going, Oh, thing. okay, so you this get is... more you get more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. Yeah, but we've we've said this before about this kind of social interaction. A lot of people look at this kind of behaviour and go, but that's just a given. That's just how you are when you're around humans. Honestly, if you're if it's not emphasized to you when you are young that these are good skills to learn and this is a good way to behave you're not going to internalize it and if you go through your life being successful without it why would it ever occur to you that you need them you're going to lean on the bad habits that yeah. somehow uh, make keep you celebrate getting you the thing that you get yeah exactly anyway the the point that i was coming around to here is that um the that gap that you're talking about there seems to be that he's, he looks at outcomes. If you're still alive and you're uninjured and overall you appear to be okay at the end of the sequence, then he just seems to not register anything that you experience during it. This is the creator of Kyle Reese, a man who was definitely alive when he came back from the future. <laughs> But also <laughs> utterly traumatised. Yes. Yes, he was. And honestly, I think a lot of those elements that come through in Cameron movies, they don't come from him. They come from the acting team around him. They yeah. come from script writers. They come from what other people Script writers? Uh, Jim Cameron writes no, 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 every when... one of his movies. Oh, okay. Fair enough. But the, the point being that they are other people's perspectives being added to what he's creating. Mm. And I would say that to an extent... Bud, in this, is a great example of the kind of leader that Cameron at this point was not capable of being. Yeah. Agreed. That actually ties in with my conclusions. Well, I think I, think I came out of the abyss with a, with a sense of my own limitations and a sense of, of the limitations that you could reasonably expect other people to, to push themselves to in the making of a film. And I think we, you know, we, I may have lost a little perspective on that movie and, and pushed beyond what it, what it should be, but, the, you know, that's the nature of filmmaking. When you're out in the, you know, when you're out in the woods trying to make a, a you know, a, a chainsaw murderer movie, you're out in the woods. You have to do a shot of some kind. You have to do something. So in that, in that case, we were, you know, in a filming tank. And we had to make our schedule. We had to do the things we set out to do. Now, maybe the, the conception of going into a giant filming tank and doing all this stuff and putting actors in helmets was a dumb idea. It seemed cool at the time. You know, I think when we had to actually live it out and make it make it work, make it happen, it was a lot more difficult than we thought it was going to be. Because you know, my my biggest problem is that my I can I can sort of make the cognitive leap to what the end picture will look like, and it and it you know it always is a glorious picture. It's the steps to get there, you know, that sometimes are pretty grueling. But you know, that's where experience comes in. You know, I've been at this for a while now, so I have a better idea of what it takes to get to the end result. So he's a big talker. If you watch the uh, making of documentary, which is maybe the only official uh, document on this thing, like it's uh, it's an hour long. It's composed of uh, archival. Uh, it was made around the time. Uh, archival interviews with uh, actors who were talking about their experiences. And Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio is very noticeably absent. She is not there as a talking head. Mm. Ed Harris is there to talk about it, but then later. Uh, it says he disowned the movie, and then it says he said he didn't disown the movie, but he definitely doesn't want to talk about it. But Cameron talks big. He talks big about his ideas, postulates on, on the, uh, the, the importance of getting the art out of this. And 
When you're young in the 90s, a big talker is uh, kind of great fun to watch because you're like, ah, oh, cool. So films can be important and films about stuff and themes can be important. And then maybe the 2000s, maybe the big talker is still engaging. But at the end of the 2010s, when you see a big talker, someone who talks about themselves all the time, someone who talks about how big and important and huge and phenomenal and, and how, how much of a, like, we got here first and we did this and I did this the best, it gets a little tiresome. You start, you start thinking, maybe stop talking quite so big and examine the ramifications and repercussions of your behavior. Which kind of feels like we maybe should have done Cameron earlier in our uh, podcasting career. But this is, this is the lowest point in terms of how bad his sets and uh, shoots were. Like, it's, it's all uphill from here. So maybe he did learn something from it, even if he wouldn't concede it until a lot oh, later. I think he did. He absolutely did. He still uh, ended up somewhat tyrannical on the set of Titanic... I believe Kate Winslet also said she wouldn't work with him again, but then d later decided that, yes, mm. she would, and I think she's in Avatar too. Stop making people wet. Wet and cold all the time. <laughs> you crazy man. Ah, uh, dear me. And Avatar 2 apparently takes place in the ocean, so... Really? Oh, but, but as we just discussed with the uh, Aquaman show, now that you can do that kind of thing with CG, you can do stuff in an environment where people are not subjected to that kind of physical discomfort. There's been a lot of... Um... See, Cameron, Cameron would say, well, you can. <laughs> <laughs> but that would defeat the point. Why not just flood the whole set? <laughs> but then I wouldn't have my tower. Um, but the, there's been a lot of back and forth recently about the, the fact that, oh, modern movies, they all lean on CG and they do, like, you've, you're filming things on blue screen that you didn't have to. You could have taken them to a, a location and filmed it on location. Okay, all right, fair enough. But consider this. You take somebody on location in certain circumstances in filmic history, they get dysentery. That's happened. I'm not saying that that is, a, is you go on location, you're going to get dysentery. But what I'm saying is that's happened. If you film something on a blue screen, they're not going to get dysentery or the likelihood is much reduced. So Unless they go to that restaurant where they eat all the grey meat. Well, there is that. But <laughs> my, my point being that there are modern techniques that are heavily criticised by older members of the film industry... And honestly, I, I think there are reasons why maybe in this day and age it makes sense not to put your actors through mm. a big pile of shit. Yeah, he wanted to get as much stuff done in camera as possible, which is admirable. The desire. However, the application of that desire was where this fell down. Um, this was filmed in a series of tanks. It was, it was two because filming in the wild wouldn't allow you to, or, or a river wouldn't allow you the, uh, um, the massive amount of control he needed and would be straight up dangerous. It was dangerous anyway, but it would be even more dangerous yeah, doing this in the ocean. and he found out pretty fast that the amount of control he had was going to bleed away rather mm. quickly. So they filled up this giant, like a reservoir-style tank to, to descend 50 metres into. They realised after a while, with the standing water and the submerged sets, that this is actually a great breeding ground for algae and bacteria. So people were actually straight up in danger from the water. Do you know why? Because rather than look at how you fill a swimming pool, 
and add chemicals and chlorine and things to it to make sure that that doesn't happen. They just put water in it. Yeah. And then they were like, ah, fuck, algae. Ah, what kills algae? Chlorine. Chlorine, you say. But then they put too much in. So then they poured in loads and loads of chlorine and then a bit extra for luck. And people's hair went white and fell out. Lisa, the blob has got me. Don't touch me or I'll get you too. Dad, you have to put chlorine in the water every day to keep it clean. Chlorine, eh? Oh, my face is on fire. Just, you're working with water. Get some people who know how to work with water. Apparently one of the reasons they had to have two tanks was because the pipes burst on the first one. Yeah. (sighs) So, um... A lot of the stuff when they're going down to the submarine to sort of uh, look around and then be in in these uh, just regular diving suits. They're looking for aliens. So no, they're not looking for aliens. They're just looking to investigate the sub. It's it's got a bit of Jaws in there where you know with, like rather than trying to like jump scare you with and then the guy turns up and the crab walks out of his eye. There's definitely kind of a visual reference to a guy with crabs walk, crawling all over his face. Just as a, a poor dead sailor and one of the uh, buds team starts to freak out because they're all dead down here they've all drowned and uh, the just the, the the sense of weight starts to play on him this is a fantastic combination of elements as well because part of the reason why it, this is they, they really build on the claustrophobia when they go into the sub and it the, the paranoia elements have already been seeded because the the military team tell Lindsay and Bud and the the rest of the rig team that the reason they're here is to search the sub for survivors. That is not why they're there. Mm. I'm sure that would be a bonus if they found any, but it's highly unlikely that they would at this stage. But why they're actually there is because they are terrified that the Russians will get to this sub before they do and steal the nuclear warheads that are on board. And they're they're trying to kind of prevent that from happening. See, I'm baffled at that because Russia and America at the time were just buying more and more nuclear warheads and just commissioning more each year and they had enough to destroy the world 10 times over so what does it matter if some soviets get hold of some american ones for free i mean they're still having to scramble their submarines it's costing it's taking them like i would understand it if it if it was that the americans declared this submarine was just a peaceful American submarine that wasn't anything to do with warheads and was in Russian waters. It could be that it wasn't supposed to have a warhead on board and they were were trying to recover it so that nobody would find out. Yeah, and if Americans... uh, They wanted to stop the Russians from going, ah, see, warheads in our territory. What was that all about? Or it could also be that they And to avoid an international incident. They had intel on board that they didn't want the Russians to get hold of. It's very vague. Exactly. And the idea of it just being about one warhead is... Bonkers. Absolutely. Paranoia is very vague because the way it behaves is every time you confront an element of it with rationality and facts, it will cling on to something else because the paranoia is the point. Hmm. Alan Silvestri was between Back to the Futures 1 and 2 at this point, and that sound is very clearly coming through. Let's talk about the moment when Jammer panics while exploring the submarine. 
The way this scene is framed, where uh, Jammer, who's the, the guy who, he has a panic attack here and then spends much of the rest of the film in a coma, is that he experiences a degree of upset and freaking out that you wouldn't anticipate because up to this point he's been really chilled this is what he does day to day yeah absolutely the, the he's not in an environment that he's not used to no but what he is not used to is how close and compact this sub is mm. and he is a big guy he is very very tall mm. and he has to like the, coming down in through the hatches and things it you can see it building in him that this is I shouldn't be here, this isn't right, and, and yeah. then he has this freak out. And what I love about this this scene is how Bud responds to him. Mm. And this is what I mean about him being the kind of leader that Cameron seems incapable of being, or at least seemed incapable of being at this point. It's strange. Is, how do you write someone who, who responds like this and think mm. this is the right way to respond and, and then, then not do it do yourself? It. Exactly. But he uh, but the the way that Bud reacts is there is no blame. There is no criticism at all. He's like, you know what, dude? That's absolutely fine. You've hit your limit. That's fine. I got to go and do Stay a thing. Here. I do have to go and do this thing, but here is a rope. You hold this end. I will hold that end so you know I'm here. And everything that he does is about reassuring and calming and settling situations so that they can proceed. Again, he's got big dad energy. Mm, yeah. Uh, while he's stuck here, the uh, the guy who had a, had the freak out starts to see bright shining lights, which to begin with seem to bewitch him. And then he starts to panic and turns and tries to escape, smashes his big backpack regulator against the uh, doorway because, of course you're not used to moving around in that particular uh, very close environment and then Bud has to tow him to safety and, and effectively save his life. But what he's seeing is the aliens making their presence known uh, and it's they're, they're sort of very held back and away from the audience and like we're just told there's something and it's glowy and we don't quite know its intentions yet. Yeah, we've already had the discussion uh, from Lindsay to the SEAL team about the effects of uh, high pressure nervous syndrome, part of it is hallucinations. So mm. the assumption is that at this point, Jammer could be Was just seeing things. Yeah. Shortly after that, there's a power outage and Lindsay is working outside the rig and she sees another alien much closer. And under these circumstances, the audience is left in absolutely no doubt that this thing is not only playful, but child-friendly. Like there's this sort of big floating pink thing. And then there, isn't there like a smaller, more childlike whizzing thing? Mm. So we're in Pixar territory yeah. here. There's a, there's a, um, a, it's almost like, imagine a ray, mm. but with curved edges instead of points. It's very, like, it's, its outline is very flowy. So a manta it's, ray that's uh, cylindrical. Yeah, it's surrounded by this um, neon light, uh, which people who've seen Avatar will immediately recognise that this is obviously an aesthetic that Cameron is very devoted to because yeah. he's expanded it into the whole of Pandora. So people have seen there's a huge section of uh, Animal Kingdom that looks like that now. Yeah. <laughs> um, people who've seen Avatar equals most people who've seen movies. Yes, that's very true. We know this from the numbers. Um, but the the whole sort of essence of this, this first introduction of these creatures is that they are not hostile at least not immediately hostile that they they tend to approach and then sit 
which makes it clear that they are there to observe, at least in the first instance, that they are the complete antithesis, in fact, of the military hostility paranoia. And the antithesis of the uh, xenomorph, um, like, we're going to use your bodies. Yeah. Oh, it's going to kill the shit out of you. Well, these aren't. They are, they are not that mm. at all. Critics compared it repeatedly to E.T., these mm. gentle aliens on the, the bottom of the eyes. sea. The big, it's very Spielberg-influenced in terms of yeah. the, um, the imagery. But critics were comparing it to E.T. in a derogatory fashion, as though you got us all the way here, Cameron, and then you just delivered us E.T., as though delivering E.T. is something to complain about. May I refer you to Contact? You took us all the way into space. Yeah. And then that complaint, which we won't spoil contact, but it's totally worth seeing. I get whenever this kind of movie turns up, I feel like pearls before swine. Because, like, Sunshine and uh, Arrival. Arrival, at least, was critically acclaimed. Almost all of them have endings that people, critics and audiences alike, walk out going, What the fuck was that about? It was about how the whole universe is a circle. Don't make me get the PowerPoints out. Yeah. But, I mean, James Cameron (laughs) is blunt and says everything out loud. Yes. Yes, he does. So it's not like it was all that difficult to really wrap your head around. But But in the case of the theatrical version, he cut the ending and the point out. Absolutely. And and this this whole sequence, and I know what you mean about the middle act being all about waiting, and it is very slow. It is very slow indeed. But I will say this, it is also, for the most part, very, very beautiful. When they do the first initial scenes of the dives, and you get the first uh, appearances of the the creatures, Mm. The I, I can completely understand from this why Cameron is entranced by being in deep water. And this is something that he keeps going back to. He appears to want to live under the sea. And honestly, at this stage, that might be better for a lot of people all round. Yeah. Marge, kids, everything's going to be just fine. Now go upstairs and pack your bags. We're going to start a new life under the sea. <laughs> Under the sea, there'll be no accusations, just friendly crustaceans under the sea. Homer, that's your solution to everything, to move under the sea. It's not gonna happen. Not with that attitude. Who else wanted to live under the sea? Stromberg, the villain in The Spy Who Loved Me. (laughs) Only he wanted the surface dwellers to kill each other with nuclear war. This really is a weird flip on, it's somewhere between Arrival and The Spy Who Loved Me. (laughs) Do you want Bioshock? Because that's how you get Bioshock. (laughs) But the, the, like, the music, there's this kind of eeriness about it. Mm. It's very subtle, honestly. At, At this stage, most of the music they've had so far has been diegetic. So you then have this kind of sort of eerie under the sea sound mm. which is not quite music it's chimes but it's not melody exactly and it just it, it's so evocative it's alan silvestri during one of his busiest periods ever he was in between who framed roger rabbit back to the future 2 back to the future 3 and predator 2 
all in the space of like a year. He was so prolific at this point. And he's still like, he d did the music for Endgame. So the highest grossing movie of all time in 2019. So like he has had an amazing career. And it would have been James Horner, but as we mentioned on the Aliens show, um, Jim fucked James Horner around so much that he was like, I will never work with you again. He would recant on that for Titanic uh, to Oscar winning praise. But uh, at this point, Jim Horner was not t uh, receiving calls from Jim Cameron. I'm starting to feel like working with James Cameron is like childbirth. Immediately afterwards, everybody is swearing they will nope. never do it again. Not and happening. then enough time passes and they're like, eh, maybe. Sigourney <laughs> came back for Avatar. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there's one more uh, major enco uh, encounter with the, they call them NTIs. It's... Um, Non-terrestrial intelligence. Yeah. Uh, a, a phrase that Lindsay coins and everybody picks up on. Or Alan says, or UFOs, underwater flying objects. objects. Yeah. Which I, I, I like Alan, uh, the, the guy with the rat, because he's excitable. And anyone excitable in a movie where you've you've got scary things going on, you kind of rely on to, to keep recentering. Yeah, But he's also a conspiracy theorist and he's convinced that the CIA are trying to get them all. Yeah, that's dated a little. <laughs> um but yeah, the, what happens next is something that, again, Cameron really, really wanted to push forwards, which is a liquid sphere of water sort of get, like, if you've seen Donnie Darko, it's the same thing. The sort of this, this water snake trails itself around the, uh, the rig while everyone's just sort of sitting there waiting because there's a, a storm at the, uh, on the surface and then the crane that they need to actually um, pull them back up to the surface breaks off the ship and falls down to the uh, uh, the they're, they're sort of on the shelf next to an abyss. Mm. The reason that that happens, by the way, is because having gone and done their underwater exploration, mm. the SEAL team then steal the, um, the crane or use the crane to get themselves alone back to the sub so, so they that get they can the recover this warhead. Right. While that's happening, there's a hurricane going on above um, above ground, mm. and that's how the, the crane then right. breaks, because it's in use when a hurricane is going on. Right, gotcha. As opposed to being packed away yeah, carefully. This is kind of, in a way, it's sort of presented as uh, this is the military trying to do things that they know nothing about. These are not their areas of expertise. Yeah. They're going to fuck it up. They've gone to a place where they had to talk to the experts and then they said, fuck you experts, we'll do our own thing with blackjack and hookers. Precisely. Yeah, specifically being pushed and pushed and pushed by Michael Bean, who we'll talk about in a bit because he informs upon this middle section heavily. Um, but yeah, there's this liquid sphere of uh, of water that very much went on to become what the T-1000 looks like in, uh, in its non-formed uh, incarnation. Only this is benevolent. And uh, when it interacts, again, it's like Moana, when the sea interacts with Moana, it's this sort of pointy, question marky looking spe uh, spear. And they can, you can actually make something like that because it's stylized and not especially realistic and it's doing things that you don't see water do. Mm. You can make it quite expressive. Yeah, and I love the fact that they, and they did this a little bit more in Moana, but there are elements of it here. It looks like a sock puppet. Mm. And so you, you immediately get the feeling of, this is a thing that you are directly interacting with, yeah. but it's being puppeteered by something bigger than that that you can't see. There's a nervousness about it because it's effectively a tentacle. And again, this thing could be deceptive. And it uh, forms the face of both uh, Lindsay and then Bud. And to do this, they used facial scanning. And this is, again, pioneering uh, computer graphics 
and it's just one sequence of the film, but it's really memorable. And it, and uh, it, everyone's just sort of looking at the spear and, and uh, overawed. And I think modern audiences would be a bit, yeah, now what? Because it, it's, it's a showcase for the effects, which we now feel complacent about. In fact, if anything, we feel a little irritated when something is overtly CG and we're supposed to go wow. We like it when things are CG but integrated so well that we don't notice. Mm, yeah. Or CG that is simple enough that it doesn't look like it's been overcomplicated by something unintentionally. Yeah. And eventually Michael Bean realises that this snake is uh, on the loose, closes the door, which immediately just turns the, just turns the water back to water again. It's no longer being controlled and it just sort of floods down, which is a really great visual expressive way of it suggesting and especially after Lindsay takes uh, like shoves her finger directly into this thing's face and then tastes it like we all do with people we meet from other planets and goes mm, it's seawater but uh, yeah it, it's a way of illustrating that effectively the sea itself was used as a tool to mm. as a conduit to communicate with and greet yeah so that that uh, coffee closing the bulkhead and um, separating this arm this kind of watery arm is it's not a physical assault on the NTIs, but it is a slamming the door on communication. It's effectively saying to them, we don't want to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, again, more words on the tank. Because it was actually relatively shallow at 50 metres or so, um, they didn't want to have sunlight streaming in from above all the time. They were uh, trying to imply that this was at a much greater depth. So to achieve this, they covered the surface of the water, but they knew that people were gonna have to surface suddenly and quickly uh, if something went wrong under there, and so they couldn't like cover it in a, a swimming pool sheet cover uh, because that might potentially kill people. So they covered every inch of the surface of this water with tiny black beads Beads. Bees? Beads. Beads? Job's not on board. We'll see who brings in more honey. Who'd want a bee as a gift? That look like caviar. They're like little black polystyrene beads. I don't know where they bought that many from. But I kind of got my hands full with these babies. He's got bees. Oh, bees! They don't allow you to have bees in here. But they just covered it. Uh, there, I believe it's it's what plastic is when it's made. Right. So when you're making something out of plastic, you buy this it in this format in, as the raw materials, and then you melt it down and make whatever you want to make out of it. So they covered it in beads. I wonder how this is going to affect my honey business. And just all of these, just, just this gross, like, oil slick on the surface. And it feels weirdly like that, this is just my interpretation, that kind of informed on the whole shoot. So rather than the beauty of this open water, it's more we're making it deliberately murky and we're polluting the water to achieve this. Those microbeads are a big pollution concern now because there's so many of them in the oceans and fish eat them and they just clog up everything. Yeah, apparently they clogged up every member of the cast. Yes, indeed. Well, part of the issue with the algae was, I mean, you would think that if these beads were blocking out the sunlight, that would actually keep some of the algae growth under control. Hmm. But from the looks of things, what actually happened was the beads got covered in algae themselves. Brilliant. <laughs> there was also a blackout at one point. Michael Bean was uh, way down... Uh, ready to uh, start filming in between um, scenes and it just it went 
incredibly dark. He couldn't see his hand in front of his face. He didn't know which way was up. His radio had cut out, so he couldn't com- communicate with anybody. Did he have air at this point? He had air, but he didn't know how much because he couldn't see the gauge. So... This was obviously an incident that could not be controlled. And I feel like the biggest oversight of this shoot was things will be okay as long as nothing goes wrong. Something inevitably goes wrong. And it's that word, inevitably. If your shoot is going to be okay unless something goes wrong, you're in trouble. Because something will inevitably go wrong. Absolutely. And if people's lives are in danger as a result of that, none of this is worth it. Yeah. And that... Again, there's, there was something that Cameron said in one of the interviews where he was talking about what went on with uh, Ed Harris's. We're going to be talking about that we later. We'll talk about later. But specifically, the the way that Cameron's attitude to it was summed up was when he said that at no point was Ed really in fear of his life because we had all of these things that were controlling the circumstances. If you never you have, had control. That's the illusion. If you have to put all of those things in place. James, that's because someone's life is in danger. If there was no threat, you wouldn't need those control measures. The presence of the control measures makes people nervous because they indicate that there is a threat. It's like people having to go out wearing masks. Yes, it makes people nervous because it makes them, there is a visual representation of the fact that there is a threat around. It is an inevitability. That sequence in Jurassic Park, that timeless, always being brought up again, so useful for all of these horrendous situations, mm-hmm. sequence over over the Chilean sea bass, applies perfectly to this shoot. Yeah. The, like pretty much everything that Ian says about chaos and about like something's going to happen and the way that uh, Ellie talks uh, later when they're over the ice cream about not having control and James assured that he does have control. He's John Hammond. This is one of the things that frustrates me when people go on about, oh, in this day and age, everybody's risk assessment obsessed. Here's the thing. You can never think of everything. You can never think of everything. But everything that you do think of is less likely to go wrong. The things that go wrong will be the things you didn't think of. It didn't occur to them, how are we going to get Michael Bean out of this tank quickly if there's a power cut? And that's what happened. The phrase that kept coming up again and again was, he's a trooper, Mm. she's a trooper. That suggests you take your punishment like a good soldier. This should not be a military. This should not <laughs> be a military have operation. To when you're in this industry, you're an actor. You're acting as a soldier. You're not actually a soldier. Frankly, soldiers shouldn't have to go through this shit. As we established when we covered Full Metal Jacket, directed by Stanley Kubrick, rather similar cloth cut from James Cameron. Mm. But that's why we're doing these seasons of directors. We've got Guillermo del Toro, absolute dream to work with. Stanley Kubrick, absolute nightmare. James Cameron, more in the Kubrick cam. <laughs> Although a sliding scale. There's a, an interesting link. Guillermo del Toro's father was kidnapped in 1998. Yes. James Cameron gave him a million dollars to get his father back. That's an astonishing little story factoid. And again, I'm incredibly grateful that Cameron exists to be able to do that. 
to actually save a life in this case. Indeed. Rather than endanger them Honestly, like normal. The thing that, that kind of upset me most about that story was in 1998, Guillermo, Guillermo del, Toro del Toro didn't, didn't have, have a million, million dollars. dollars. No, he didn't. <laughs> He hadn't done uh, The Devil's Backbone yet. He was just about doing Mimic at this point, being fucked around by the studio. So, yeah, he has a million dollars now. I'm sure he could pay Jim back. I'm sure he did. Or if some other up-and-coming director has a situation arise in which they need a million dollars, he could pass it on. Yes. Uh, Michael Bean as uh, Coffee actually does a really fantastic job. The problem for me is the casting, because... I associate Michael Bean, uh, directed by Cameron, with Kyle Reese, who is an inherently good man, deeply troubled and, and uh, traumatized, but someone who really, you know, is selfless and will do whatever he can to protect the uh, heroine of the story, Sarah Connor. And then Aliens, you've got Hicks, uh, originally uh, cast uh, James Remar, and then they got rid of that um, wonderful creep and brought in Michael Bean to effectively play a slightly sleepy but very supportive, quietly, softly spoken guy of the kind that we don't see very often in action movies. He's yeah. kind of the basis for Butler. He's actually, Butler's said several things that uh, Hicks has said. Sorry, I forgot who I was talking to. You know, Dwayne is this comforting guy who can get you to a certain point, but then there's a point where Ripley has to go it alone, but luckily he's prepared her enough. Um, and then Coffee is a nightmare of a man. Mm -hmm. This really uptight, staring-eyed, like, crazed guy. He, we, like, it's strange that we also covered The Rock this year, and we've pretty much done all of Michael Bean's most well-known films apart from, ooh, Navy Seals! <laughs> that show on The Rock, which also happens to star Ed Harris, is coming soon, folks. I do find it intriguing that he has these, these three roles. They are all soldiers. Yeah. They have all been, like, their personality is shaped by their experience of the military, mm. and those experiences were all clearly very different. Yeah. Kyle Reese uh, saw f far too many people die. Mm. and Far too young. Knew nothing but war he's and a, nothing but conflict. Yeah, he's a very... Uh, I mean, I think in the in the novelization, he's only about 19, mm. eight, uh, 1920. Hicks seems to be in a, a unit of colonial marines that are always on top of the situation wherever they go. So he's not, you know, filled with bloodlust. He's just kind of work a day. I'll just go in, do what we need to do, and then get the hell out he's of here. He's well-resourced, he's capable, and he's surrounded by uh, units that mm. appear to be very supportive of what they're doing. And there's a bunch of jokester assholes around him, which suggests they haven't been so far in the shit that they've seen things that would stop them from being able to josh with each other all the time. That's the oversight of aliens. Mm. This is the first thing that really pulls them up sharp. Yeah. And yet, Coffee in this seems like he's done a lot of Black Ops stuff, mm. and he knows what he's doing on the surface, and he knows what he's doing just below the surface, but now he's down here, he's like, no, I'm, I'm in charge, I'm in charge, I'm in charge! And he's just holding on tighter and tighter and tighter and going crazier at the time. And he's told about HPNS, high pressure nervous syndrome. He's, he's told your hands will start to shake as a symptom, like you need to tell us if this starts happening, yeah. and, and he doesn't. Specifically, his response to being told about this, so that's primed his subconscious with the fact that this is a thing. But his reaction to Lindsay is, none of us are going to get that. We're all fine. We've done this kind of thing before. Yeah, we're professionals. And she specifically says, there's no shame in it. There's no way of knowing who it's going to affect a lot, who it's going to affect a little. It just does. It's a it's a physical, neurological thing. Again, Lindsay acts as a, in a, a sort of an... Uh, 
uh, an informant specialist in a way that is, there's no shame in it, is not something James Cameron would say. I don't know how he can write these characters that are, are more lenient than him, but there you go. Um, My guess is that he knows all of this stuff intellectually. He just finds it difficult to put it into place when yeah. his emotions are running high and his creativity is on the line. So there's this lengthy midsection where they, they it's, it's all about acquiring a warhead and it's claustrophobic and it's it's probably like, I've not seen it, but Das Boot, a bunch of people stuck in a tight space, unable to really get back to the surface and uh, just kind of ticking along. There's another film that uh, Jim Cameron most definitely wanted this to be uh, the underwater equivalent of, and that is 2001 A Space Odyssey, directed by Stanley Kubrick. He wanted to take audiences on a similar kind of journey. And to a degree, because he puts in the middle of the film like a, a lot of people interacting, and he specifically chose blue-collar workers, he went for a much more humanistic angle. So he's, he's doing a lot better of a job of, of making a story that people can engage with in that regard. Whereas yeah, 2001 is very intellectualised and the very characters lofty. have a, a, a scientific way of looking at things and there's a detachment to it. People barely speak. There's silence is the main verbiage of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm. To illustrate to you how quiet space is, uh, whereas uh, under here it's kind of whispers and talking and the sort of the, the, the movements of the water, there's sort of a deep resonance there and obviously the music complements that. But it's, it's got that same form of feeling isolated and that definitely comes to a head in the third act of the film. We can move on to that now if you want. Ultimately, um, Michael Bean... A coffee gets hold of the warhead and then start. Once the aliens turn up, he's like, "Right, we got to nuke him. We got to fucking kill him. We got to kill these aliens. Nuke him!" And he's he. I suppose he kind of gets a bit like Kent Mansley in the Iron Giant, only not funny at all. Yeah. The fact that he's called coffee, maybe he should have had a bit less. Yeah. <laughs> There's a scene like this in Armageddon where Bill Fickner. Uh, says, you just broke your drill. We can't do this. Uh, I'm just going to blow up this nuclear warhead now where we're sat on the asteroid. And when it goes, it will be our best chance of blowing this thing up. And Bruce Willis's Harry is like, no, it won't. That's just like, it's. I already illustrated the whole thing about the firecracker and the hand. In the closed fist, it does a lot more damage. We've just trust me, I can get this drilling done. It takes place over a much shorter amount of time and is much more kind of like immediately tense. Mm -hmm. Whereas this is that stretched out over about 35 minutes with a very slow submersible chase in it as well. Like, like submersible chases are difficult because you're underwater, so you can't really get distance established. The tank's too small for you to really do very long shots away. The submersible seems to be moving at an extremely slow pace and it's underwater, so you can't really make it fast. And there's no background to really illustrate like that it's moving at speed. There's some quite good cuts in editing and they, they keep colliding with rocks and the ocean floor to, to illustrate that there's hazards. So he does some things here to sort of ramp it up. But it's, it's the difference between why speed was super engaging and speed to cruise control, an ocean liner in the middle of the ocean, less so. There's a, a fight between him and Ed Harris where he, like, there's a long creep up on him. They have to, like, go outside and swim through and then get to a different part of the uh, rig. 
And then... Well, specifically, they've, they've had a confrontation over the fact that Lindsay finds out they've brought this warhead onto the rig yeah. and is disgusted. And she, they... Coffee immediately threatens her. This is when um, Bud steps in to defend her. He, mm. and, and again, he doesn't wade in and punch Coffee, mm. but he, he just stands in front of the door and will not let the seals remove Lindsay from the room. Mm. But then um, it they have a, a confrontation again and they end up getting the whole rig crew and putting them in a different section of the rig and kind of locking them off from the main yeah. body of it. Effectively uh, um, sort of storming in and acting like the uh, the teacher from the breakfast club, mm. but with a nuclear warhead. And, yes, uh, which is worse. Crazed intent. Yes. And... Then it just sort of it, the, the before as Ed Harris is sneaking up on Coffee, he's kind of just like pulling on a chain, just quietly sitting on his own, just pulling on a chain, and it's like, and it's like, oh my god, look at his eyes! This guy's completely cracked. He reminds me of Colonel Kurtz from Apocalypse Now, not a film I like, but that was similarly directed by uh, Coppola on a strange, mad power trip, where it, again it had this. Like, if we ever cover Apocalypse Now, the actual making of it's far more interesting to me than the actual what happens in the film. Yeah. But, I mean, this is the basis for the uh, Community episode where Annie becomes completely uh, obsessed with the Dean's vision for making uh, a little promotional video about Greendale. The Dean had his seventh epiphany today, which has given me an epiphany of my own. The Dean is a genius. He has to be. If he isn't, I've given almost two weeks of my life to an idiot. That is unacceptable. Therefore, the Dean is a genius, and I will die protecting his vision. Are you by any chance familiar with Stockholm Syndrome? Is it something that the Dean created? Because if not, I don't care. There's a strange mirror for the obsession with control uh, in coffee. So it's weird that there's no one who was really on the crew, at least that we could identify as being like Ed Harris's bud to be able to step in and tell Jim, no, yeah. you're pushing them too far. I strongly suspect that, again, especially at this point in his career, <clears throat> Cameron was did not have a tendency to work with um, ADs and uh, and supports specifically mm. for him. We've seen this with uh, Peter Jackson had this mm. and other directors have had this where they have basically a right-hand person mm. It's often a woman. I'm not saying that there's necessarily anything in that, but a right-hand person who is able to provide a translator, a buffer, and a communicator between the director and everybody else. Mm. The level to which Coffee has sunk at this point is made very, very clear by the fact that his own men start to detach from it. Yeah, they're like, they you're, you're are, going, you're pushing too hard on this, Sarge. Exactly. They're like, this is not the mission that we were sent down here to do you are taking this to extremes that we shouldn't be doing mm. and they actually start to they don't exactly side with the rig crew but they do start to um, become a little bit more sympathetic in mm. the in the their recognition of the fact that this is this shouldn't be happening and they ultimately saved the day coffee pulls a gun on bud after he uh, sneaks up on him to just take him out quietly and quickly and get get things back online and get rid of this nuke um, Coffee pulls the trigger and then it cuts to the, uh, one of the marines who was questioning him just emptying out the bullets from uh, a magazine that uh, he has uh, half-inched, illustrating that his 
his own backup have effectively saved Bud's life by not trusting their own commanding officer. This is when there's a, a big fight followed by he races off with the nuke to try and uh, nuke the aliens. Things go wrong and then he ends up sinking down off the shelf and his submersible crunches inwards, uh, crushed by the pressure. There's also a flood on the inside of the rig and uh, they lose several of their, their people. And again, this is one of those really violent, scary scenarios where water becomes this force of, well, it's already a force of nature, but this terrifying force of nature that will not be contained. And th there's repeated times where people have tried to close the door and on water and it just shoves past them. Just this, the, the force of it is really felt in this. Film. And uh, conversely, when people have tried to open doors mm. in order to get somebody else out, but the water is pressing yeah. up against it and they can't. And uh, there's a, a neat bit where Bud is actually saved by throwing his hand in between a closing door and it stops on the wedding ring. So we're reminded again, this thing that he fished back out has just saved his life. Exactly. And this is not just a normal, like, soft gold wedding band. This is a big, chunky, I don't know what metal it's made out of, but it looks so sturdy. It's a it signet like, ring. It looks like he took it off a, a machine of some kind. Yeah. Then the new scenario is, oh shit, there's a nuke that's sitting lower down on the shelf that's got something that's really deep into the abyss, further than we can go, and it's on a timer, and it's going to go off, and we've got like an hour to get it back or and, and turn it off, which puts them all in a difficult situation, and the remaining marines are definitely gonna, like, they just shut up and help from this point onwards. But before that, because Bud and Lindsay were uh, chasing coffee they're then stuck quite far from the rig with only one suit and this leads to i think i think probably the centerpiece moment of the film like there's all these effects and all these things but it's just this very dramatic moment where lindsay decides okay scientifically speaking if you let me drown you can bring me back and this bit just really stuck with me, the idea that she is effectively for a short while dead. She's in kind of a hibernation mode where her body is no longer functioning and it's just sort of frozen and gone into sort of a standby. And, but just before that, as the water rises up to her lips, she, you know, and Bud's fully suited up, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantono incredibly realistically panics. Like, oh no, this is a bad idea. And just knowing how much they were underwater all the time and how this affected them and how scared they would have been and how frustrated and how wet and how cold and how beleaguered they would have felt. She's not acting. This is the same as the rat. The rat was not going, well, I better perform really, really well on this breathing the pink fluid in and out. This is a woman going, oh shit, I'm gonna drown. I'm actually gonna drown. I don't trust my director not to let me die. I'm going to put a genuine trigger warning on this next sequence. It made me feel very uncomfortable just listening to. So if you don't want to experience this, spin on a few minutes. Calm down, Bud. Calm down. Okay. 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 We got to get you out of here. How? I don't know how. All right, we've only got one suit. 
I know, I know, but we've got to come oh up with Oh, my God, I'm breathing. You're smart. Think of something. Can't you think okay. of something? Think of something. Okay, why don't you swing back to the rig and bring back another suit? You want to take me that seven, eight minutes to swim, get the gear, come back. I wouldn't make it. Look at this. By the time I got back, you'd be... Okay, Please. let's look around. Just look. Is that working? All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Here. You put this on. No, no, what are you doing? You're the one. Don't argue with me, goddammit. Just no, put go, it on. Look, this is not an option, so just forget about Lindsay, it. Right? Shut up! Shut up! Put this thing on. Be logical for one Stop second. Logic. Please. Listen, just listen to me for one second. Now you've got the suit on, and you're a much better swimmer than I am, right? Yeah, maybe. Right? Just yes. So I've got a plan. What's the plan? I drown, and you tow me back to the rig. No, no. Yes, this water. No. Only a couple of degrees above freezing. I go into deep hypothermia. My blood will go like ice water. Right? My body systems will slow down. They won't stop. Lens. You tow me back, and I can, I can be revived after. Maybe 10 minutes. Lynn, put this on. Minutes. You put no, it on. It's the only way. You just put this on. Put this on. You know I'm right. Please. It's the only way you've got all the stuff on the rig to do this. Put this on. But please. This is insane. Oh my God. I know. You okay? It's the only way. Here, hold this. Just hold on. You can do this, you know. You can do this. Oh, God, Lance. I... I know. You can tell me later. time the water's been rising up and it's now finally too high and she has to go underwater and breathe out her last breath in front of him and drown. really harrowing to watch when you know quite how much went on backstage and even more so when he drags her through to the rig there's the usual resuscitation scenario which we have seen repeatedly in many other movies where it takes place over the course of half a minute and you're like oh god will they come back around and they always do and they're fine in a couple of movies it doesn't work empire of the sun and casino royale very specifically is like no this isn't going to work and this one drags and drags, and Bud is just pumping and pumping at Lindsay and screaming at her. 
And then it devolves like way past the point where she should have come back around or just been pronounced dead. Mm. Like it's either well, it's either, either it's not worked or it has worked at this point. And that is a very unusual thing to, do, to happen in a film. And then Ed Harris starts slapping Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio around her cold, dead face while her cold, dead tits are out because they've had to rip her blouse open to shock her. And Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio was obliged to lie on her back on a cold, wet floor for ten fucking hours while Cameron went, do it again, do it again, do it again. Oh, we ran out of film for that one, so all of that pain you just went through was for nothing. Do it again. Eventually, after 10 hours, she stood the fuck up and went, no, 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 you fucking do this without me. And there are shots in the film which are shooting up at Ed Harris as he's screaming down into the camera and pounding on wet, empty clothes because Mary is nowhere to be seen and she lasted probably about nine and a half hours longer than I would have. And she didn't punch James Cameron. Come on, baby, breathe. Come on. It's all over, man. It's all over. I'm sorry. No pulse. Zapper again. Do it! Charge it. Do it! Charge it. Come on, baby. Clear. Come on, baby. Clear! <laughs> Get Come on, breathe, baby. God damn it, breathe! You never backed away from anything in your life. Now fight! 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 Right now! Do it! Fight! God damn it! Fight! 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 Lynch, that's it, Lindsay. That's it, Lynch. You can do it. That's it, Lynch. Come on back, baby. Come on, you can do it, baby. <laughs> Get it, Samir. Easy, breathe easy. You did it, Ace. 
This is unforgivable for a director. How dare this have occurred? I, I cannot, I cannot, as a director myself, for many, many years, I have, I have occasionally put some of my voice actors through the ringer in terms of like, okay, we've got to go to a really dark emotional place here. I am so sorry about this. And I'll bring them there and then we'll come out and then there's aftercare as I, I'm like, okay, so you're all right. And I'll talk to them and like, we'll talk it through before and after, and we'll try to minimally do so during, but keep them in the place. And obviously, voice acting is different from actually being there and being hit with your tits out. This is a huge deal, especially for an actress who wants to have a future in cinema. And I, I can honestly say, if this hadn't been in it, we probably would have gotten more Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio films in the 90s. She still carried on working, but it was much more low-key. She steered clear of blockbusters. And I put it down to this. It's an incredibly stressful scene. It's brilliant when you watch it because it takes you through this whole emotional gamut. Mm -hmm. But once you know how the sausage got made, it, you can't separate the two. Yeah. I think what makes it worse is that all of his actual medical efforts and the doing performing CPR don't work. What works in the end is screaming at her yeah, and insulting her, her. And calling her a bitch. <laughs> And screaming that she should fight, yeah. that scares her into life. Yeah. Also... That actually happened in The Mummy. The, Tom Cruise turns into a werewolf briefly mm. and scares the woman alive again. <laughs> the, the one thing they don't do, given that the discussion before she did this was about the fact that her body will drop to such a low Is warm her up! Exactly! Get her a freaking blanket at least! I realise you're low on power, you might not have anything heated, but get her a blanket. Surely at this stage, some degree of thawing her out is going to help more than Bud shrieking at her. Blankets take too long to find. Let me punch on them titties. Ah! Oh my God. Oh my God. There is a reason that the crew started calling this film The Abuse. Yeah. Now, in practical diving terms, you can't equalize rapidly enough to fall that, that fast without having your hand on your nose and making a lot of funny faces. So since we don't want our close-ups to look that way with our leading man, what we're going to try to do is simulate falling by towing sideways and turning the camera on its side. So we're towing sideways across a rock wall for a medium close-up of Ed Harris descending into the abyss. Hold in your breath. You can't see. You can't move. You're 50, 45 feet underwater. You don't have any air supply of your own. They're going to drag you 200 feet across the bottom of this tank while you're acting. The elaborate tow rig is first successfully tested with one of Ed's stunt doubles, Charlie Arneson. Ed probably weighs close to you, right? Yeah, right. So it should track, track just the same. We got the setup working. We were doing that, and in between the rehearsal and the first take or second take, they, from what I remember, they strung a cable down and Terry, my safety diver, got hung up on that cable. And about 40 feet into this thing across the thing, I realized this isn't even happening, man, because I can't hold my breath any longer. I'm so excited anyway. There's water rushing up in my nostrils. I did this sign, out of air, unhook myself, get over to the wall. I got no air. I'm waiting for air, and this guy's hung up somewhere. I got nobody to give me air. And I sang in there. Out of breath, 
no air, and I'm going, oh, this is great, you know. And uh, then one of the guys swims over, another guy, and he gives me his regulator. I'm just about to, to burst, to take in a lung full of water, and he gives me his, his regulator, and he gives it to me upside down. So I get like half air and half water. I went like that, I got a lot of water in my lungs, you know, I, and I said, well, this is something wrong here, you know, and then I kind of thought, maybe I didn't purge a regulator, blew out what air I'd gotten in, took another big breath, got water back in my lungs, and for a split second, I really thought I was a goner, and, and uh, then Al came swimming over the cameraman, ripped the fucking thing out of, of wherever the guy was and put his regulator in the right way, took a big breath, and I went, Okay, let's go up for a second. So then we cut to the third act, and it's like Cameron has not yet finished torturing his cast. Ed Harris, then, as Bud, has to take the liquid oxygen. But because they weren't actually allowed to do it to humans, I've got a feeling that if they'd been given the scientific go-ahead, Cameron would have done it to Ed Harris and said, look, we're pushing through boundaries the first time ever we've done this to a man. I have a feeling, I could be wrong on this, but they've got the colour perfectly right if it, if it was just water. Pink goo. But I think they did use the liquid oxygen to fill his helmet up. You think? Which makes me think that there was some level on which Cameron was thinking, if just, he just start breathing it. and starts breathing, this then is going to look really like, good. By accident, we can have pioneered this. Yeah, because... Or maybe it was just fucking mouthwash. Yes, indeed. But they, they fill up the helmet and just say to Ed Harris, just hold your breath. Yeah. And you could, he couldn't see through it. So uh, specifically, uh, Cameron said on the uh, making of, and he has special contact lenses we bought from Italy. And again, this is that big talk. It doesn't matter where they came from. He shouldn't have had to do this. What they actually did was to make it seem like Ed Harris's helmet was full of liquid, was that they filled Ed Harris's helmet with liquid and just said, hold your breath, dude. And then they put him underwater. So he's double underwater. Like, it's... When he's in the room, having it tested on him, he could at any point, like, jam back the, the helmet thing and just go, and just drain it out and start <gasps> breathing again. But you can't do that shit underwater. And I said yesterday, why didn't they just have a specially made helmet with an extra lining of glass on the inside, effectively creating a vacuum, like a reinforced uh, double-glazed window? So you've actually got a, a thin layer of air in between these two layers of uh, reinforced plasteel glass. Mm. And you fill that layer like a freezy mug. You know those ones you pop in the freezer and then you put beer in them so it doesn't dilute your uh, uh, drink? So it looks like he's got liquid all over his face, and it also distorts the image of his face, which is what the liquid is there for. But Ed Harris, in between takes, can breathe comfortably. And Ed Harris just has to act like he's breathing liquid oxygen. That would be how any sane person would film this scene now. I cannot believe they did this to an actor. I, I cannot fathom it. They also dragged him, and they couldn't drag him downwards, there wasn't enough depth in the tank. So they dragged him sideways and filmed it sideways so it looked like he was going downwards. So you're Ed Harris, you got your leg attached to a thing, and you're being dragged through water with water in your mask, can't see anything, and you're hoping that nothing goes wrong because if something goes wrong, you'll die. Something went wrong. And you just heard Ed talking about it there. And what it did to him. 
during and afterwards. Somehow, because the word inevitable is in there, <laughs> Ed Harris was like, mm, can't breathe, like I'm running out of breath. So he got a combination of air and water that he then breathed in sharply, hoping it was all air, so he got water in his lungs. When you get water in your lungs, your entire body panics. You can't act your way out of that shit. You can't go, I'll just regulate this. You're 50 feet down in a tank full of water, breathing in water after you've been holding your breath in water, in water. Sometime around this, Jim Cameron was also on the bottom of the tank, alone, just contemplating whatever a man of such infinite wisdom as Jim Cameron would contemplate. Which is another way of saying who knows. When a Hollywood producer met him <laughs> down the tank, going in the other direction, Jim Cameron, in a virtually unfathomable gesture of generosity, gave the producer the slightest of nods. The nod was not returned. No, Jim was down there in the dark and his oxygen ran out. He was just like, oh shit, lost track of time, can't breathe, can't see, where am I going? Oh fuck. And then started swimming as fast as he could to the surface. There was depressurization situations here as well. Even though they were only some short way down, you can't just swim straight to the surface. You get something called the bends. Your body needs to re-regulate re itself to pressure slowly over time rather than quickly because otherwise your lungs will explode or fill with fluid and I'm sure Maya if she was here could tell us exactly why all of this works and she's listening and going oh no you got the bends all wrong but either way <laughs> the, the salient point is you can't do this shit fast you got to do it over time so Jim gets to you know to try and he finds the diving team and says give me air and the same shit happens like he's he, like it didn't work for they, him. They gave him a regulator that was actually damaged, and yeah. so when he breathed, he was breathing water. Right. That member of the diving team, for the record, got fired. Yeah. Uh, so that is actually that actually makes things a little bit worse because that suggests that Cameron will act on flawed safety measures when he's the one who's directly affected. Yeah. Uh, but he uh, just said of uh, Ed Harris, but he was a trooper. But on the way home, Ed Harris, after kind of shrugging this situation off, pulled over to the side of the road and had an emotional breakdown. But I remember driving home that night and uh, I just broke down. I was just weeping because there was a part of me that was really um, disappointed in myself for not being able to do this thing. And there was also a part of me that was like, I just, I just didn't know what to do. I was just, uh, I just, I didn't know what uh, I was supposed to do. I was in the middle of something that I just, and it was, and I really thought I was gonna die for a second. And, I, and it also pissed me off that I was, uh, that I was afraid of that, that I got scared of that for a second. It was a all total mixture of uh, so many things, you know. And though it never got that, dangerous again I always had to be in that suit until the last day of shooting I would not every day but there was always I always knew I was gonna have to go back down in this fucking fluid breathing suit yeah I'm okay so you tell me when you're getting uncomfortable okay all right get the shot over Ed was is probably the ultimate trooper in the world and if you know if he wasn't before the abyss he certainly is at you know afterwards you know it was a big big challenge and just Ed just did it day after day he just he just stepped up 
to the plate and did it. You know, it was really something to watch. And we can infer that Ed broke down because his whole body was telling him, don't do this, whatever the fuck you're doing, you're gonna kill yourself, stop doing this. His body and his brain and just his central nervous system was basically reeling from shock from this scenario. He was traumatized. So when Jim says, well, you know, uh, he, he never feared for his life. He never told you he feared for his life. He feared for his life. Even if he wasn't able to confront this on a psychological level, physically, his body feared for his life. Again, inexcusable. When the whole trick helmet idea that I just suggested would have worked so much better. And here's the thing, folks. When you watch this, you ask yourself, at every age, how do you think they did that? Do you think he really is breathing that pink water? You, uh, it must be true, because it seemed like the rat certainly was. I guess he probably was. Or maybe he wasn't, but you're thinking about it. And that's the problem with this effect. He's not actually breathing the thing, it's just water. But the person watching is wondering how you did that, rather than disengaging from their inquiring technical minds and just sort of taking everything that they see at face value. So, like, you could have achieved the same thing with just the trick of the... the double-layered visor with the liquid in the middle. I, I, I don't get why you wouldn't just do the safer thing, because everyone's gonna be wondering how you did it anyway. It, it's it's the magic trick. It's a, it's a movie magic trick, and he does the magic for real. It's... it shouldn't be real. It shouldn't... they shouldn't have to do, go through that for the sake of an effect, when the effect itself poses this question. Yeah. It does kind of make me wonder if for even the briefest of seconds when he was planning Avatar, he wondered whether it would be possible to Can grow a genetic Navi and put Sigourney put Weaver in it. Put someone else's brain in it. <laughs> it's Frankensteining it. It's notable that at one point during filming, the cast just started smashing their dressing rooms up. Just of pure frustration. They were throwing couches and TVs out the window. They were freaking the fuck out. Jim's response was, yeah, while you're upstairs trying to, up on the surface, trying to work out what kind of, ma which magazine to read next, we're down here breathing water through a hose. Like, I'm the one who spends all my time in the water. Like, he did spend 12 hours a day in the water and the actors uh, managed to uh, sort of stay mostly on the surface until they were actually needed. But he did, referred to them, he said that something along the lines of they can't just go swanning off to New York whenever they feel like it, I might need them. But he said, like, swanning off as though they weren't just trying to give themselves a mental break from this incredibly rigorous punishment. It's not swanning off if you need a fucking moment. It's downtime is absolutely essential, especially when you're in an environment that is this hostile, when you are surrounded by uh, obligations that are this hostile. It, when, the, when the nervous system gets kicked into the fight or flight response, it takes 20 to 30 minutes for it to come back down to normal. No. That's in a normal situation where you are now completely safe and the threat has stopped. When the threat doesn't stop, when the threat is continually there, yeah. you need to be able to get away from it, decompress, Literally. reset. You, you can't expect to sustain this kind of thing 
and for people not to react to it. And honestly, one of the most toxic attitudes that comes out of people who everybody goes, oh, they're a genius. He's a genius. Everything he does is wonderful. And it's, it's always a he, because it. if it's a woman, then they're getting complaints up the yin-yang. It's all worth it, and art is forever, and pain is temporary, and blah de blah de blah You know what? The I can do this, why can't you do this yeah. is a horrendous attitude. I'm obsessed, why aren't you obsessed? I don't not, know, dude, maybe it's not my vision. Not everybody can do the same thing. It would appear... Ed Harris is capable of being nice to people even while you're putting him through all this shit, including, I might add, you. <sighs> oh, no, no, I'm fine. I don't fear for my life. He did fear for his life. Ron <laughs> Howard turns up and says, here's how you be nice to people. <laughs> oh, God. <sighs> So the actual sequence, to me, this is where the film picks up for me, because this is the 2001 moment when um, Dave goes through the wormhole, effectively. He becomes the loneliest man in existence and drifts down this abyss. Uh, and I think the way it's called the abyss is very foreboding, but what's down there is a weird kind of peace, a, a strange kind of new perspective on the world. As he descends, it's... It hurts him and he's freaking out because of the uh, liquid oxygen and his suit starts to actually kind of crack and like his, his light explodes at that depth. So it feels very punishing to get there, but the actual process of Bud going through there and, and because he can't speak anymore, even though uh, they did pioneer the uh, dialogue that was recorded while they were in the suits had never been done that way before in film. This was the first time they'd actually had recorded there in the moment. Mm. Uh, so there is not extensive ADR, which yeah. you would expect there to be for this country. There was some ADR for the uh, special edition because they had to patch up certain scenes. Uh, Captain Kid Brewer Jr., uh, who played uh, one of the uh, oil rig crew, who unfortunately dies fairly early on, um, the actor did die, so he was unavailable to uh, record any ADR, so they had to loop his, uh, go back to the original tapes and, and use the parts of dialogue that they had there. Um, so they dedicated the special edition to him. That's, it's very sad that, you know, the, the 89 version comes out and even just a few years later, they're, they're filming new stuff for this film and one of the cast members is already dead for, for a version that people will only see on home video. And there was like a very limited run re-release. But it was kind of already, it had had its impact at that point, And it was uh, to be regarded as a curio for film aficionados after that point. But Bud is the loneliest man in the world. And he's tapping into his little wrist thingy. Um, he's texting, effectively. The entire finale of this film is a text message conversation. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's Lindsay now just about recovered after her near-death experience, or death experience, um, speaking into a mic like Peggy uh, to uh, Steve, and Bud replying via text, and slowly as the uh, pressure gets to him, he starts to just type gibberish. Um, and he's just got to disarm a bomb, and there's a really neat moment where uh, he's told to, do the, uh, to cut the yellow wire with the blue stripe not the black wire with the white stripe or something along those lines and he's looking at it in the light of a little green glow stick which makes both wires indistinguishable again that's a great visual moment where you're like oh shit and it's I, I really feel like electrical wires by this point should be designed where like one of them has 
many fletched like, stripes. Yeah, yeah, horizontal stripes, and the other one is vertical. Because yeah, you don't know what fucking lighting you're going to have. It. Yeah, but either way, it makes for a great tense moment. And then Bud just quietly surrenders at the uh, on the very bottom of the ocean floor. He uh, doesn't have enough air to get back up again. And this is a really sweet, heartfelt scene. Again, I'm thinking Peggy and Steve and and. Bud says he knew this was a, a, a one-way trip and a one-way ticket, and but that he did it to protect everyone. Because ultimately, in the theatrical version at least, uh, the warhead is set by our inner demons in the in the form of this the neurosis of uh, coffee to try to destroy a perceived threat, which is in fact benevolent, and it takes self-sacrifice to actually deal with this to to remove this threat and, and to not specifically bud's doing it to not let the rest of the crew blow up because yes. they can't get to minimum safe distance it's, it's for the people that he cares about mm. and it's it's very you were talking about that kind of that dad energy and this is something that i i associate very much with that kind of character stereotype bud has this willingness in him to to do the hard thing because he doesn't want to see anyone else get hurt but also there's an element of when the end comes, he has to be doing something. Mm. He cannot let somebody else do the, the the thing that he feels like he can't trust to anyone else. And there are negatives and positives to that that kind of, mm. uh, of, of characteristic, that, that personality type. But ultimately, one of the reasons why, in, in fiction at least, they make incredibly good leaders is because they are always willing to do the thing that they, you know, they, they would never ask anything of anyone else that they wouldn't do themselves. And I think that's what Cameron thinks he's doing when he does the, I can do this, why can't you do that? That's and the opposite. You're, the you're, thing. In, in Cameron's case, he's saying, I'm doing this, you should do this too. Exactly. Whereas Bud is like the total opposite. I'm doing this so nobody else has to suffer. Exactly. And it's it's not, like I said, there's there's good and bad about this and the bad is that they he doesn't trust anybody else to do it he needs to know that the that everything that could be done was done and he will only know that if he does it himself hmm. 8500 feet 8500 feet bud everything okay ask him about pressure effects tremors vision problems euphoria ensign monk wants to know how you feel It's starting. It hits the nervous system first. Keep talking, Lindsay. Let him hear your voice. Okay, bud. Your depth is 8,900 feet. You're doing fine. No. Lindsay, talk to him. Bud, there are some, some things I need to say. It's hard for me, you know. It's not easy being a cast iron bitch. It takes discipline and years of training. A lot of people don't appreciate that. Jesus, I'm sorry I can't tell you these things to your face. You have to wait till you're alone in the dark, freezing, and there's 10,000 feet of water between us. Coming up on the big 10 foul.
12,000 feet. Jesus, I don't believe he's doing this. Shut up, what's wrong with you? Bud, how are you doing? Bud? He's losing it. Talk to him. Keep him with us. Coming up on 16,000. No, but, but it's the pressure. All right, you have to listen to my voice. You have to try. Concentrate, all right? Just listen to my voice, please. 17,000 feet. Christ almighty, this is insane. What? Bud, give me a reading off your liquid oxygen gauge. What? It took him 30 minutes just to get down there. Bud, do you hear me? You drop your weights and start back now, bud. That gauge could be wrong. Do you hear me? Just drop your weights and start back now. Your gauge could be wrong. Your gauge could be wrong. You drop your weights and start back now. No, you won't stay there. Do you hear me? You drop your weights. You can breathe shallow. Do you hear me? But please, listen to me, please. God damn it, you dragged me back with a bottomless pit. You can't leave me here alone now, please. Oh, God, Virgil, please. Please. And Bard elects to stay down there on the shelf because he knew this was going to be a one-way trip. But he does tell Lindsay he loves her in text form. And this is the um, the bit that audiences sat there in the theatres were like, wait, what? The aliens that they'd had teased before, this little manta ray little guy turns up and goes, hey, I bring you peace. <laughs> He's breaking his peace. <laughs> Kill it. Break his legs. <laughs> and... <laughs> There's this come away, O oh human child, to the woods and waters of the wild with a fairy hand in hand for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. Feel about this scenario. You, you've already accepted that Bud's going to die down here. And he's brought on to what, you know, younger kids and uh, even younger adults would uh, associate being the fucking Covenant ship from Halo. <laughs> It's so, like, got the same kind of undersea, sort of blue with pink lighting mm. decor It looks like it's it. been carved out of a giant power shell. Yeah. I mean, like, the Halo series takes so much from James Cameron's films, specifically Aliens, and then, I suppose, The Abyss for the uh, Covenant. James Cameron actually commented on it himself. He was like, ah, these fucking kids with their Halos, you want to watch Aliens, that's the real deal, or something equally petulant. As opposed to, I'm glad that I'm so influential. But then again, he said the same shit when uh, Wonder Woman came out. It was like, Bleh, if you kids want to see the real deal, Sarah Connor and Ellen Ripley. Which is like, great, Jim, you're helping the guys who are saying all we need is two strong women, both directed by you. And yet Army of the Dead directly rips him off and his approach is, oh, it's genius, it's wonderful, it's so fresh, it's so new. Zack Snyder is, is a genius. He has, he to, has be. to be. <laughs> Otherwise, what the fuck am I doing with my life? Anyway, so... These are removable aliens. Like the, the, the theatrical version, they just save Bud, and it seems like the aliens are recognizing that he was trying to make sure they weren't blown up along with everyone else. And then they go to the surface and hug, and that's it. 
And he just sort of sends a message saying, picked up some new friends. The special edition is completely different. Completely. And I feel like what Jim said was, on you know, in the script, I had these ideas, and then the final version just didn't really work out all that well. In other words, he like he put together with all the available stuff, and including going back and doing reshoots and actually being able to piece this thing together with more budget and swap the practical plastic wave that he had for these effects for a, a digital one. Um, he wasn't all that happy with the special edition either, and I think this is why we've not seen it re-released in any big way. Yeah. If he's going to let it go out there, he's going to want to recut it again. But I th the, the footage is not available to make it the version that he wants it to be. Ultimately, the whole thing is always going to be kind of compromised from his original vision. What the aliens do is make massive tidal waves appear on the beaches of California and New York and also California, San Francisco, because those are the most recognizable coastlines with the Golden Gate Bridge and the Statue of Liberty. It's big, like Roland Emmerich totally went, I'm doing that for all my big disaster movies. Just the coasts of America under threat. And these big tidal waves, just a mile high. And people running and screaming. And I'm like, oh, cool, 90s clothing. Like, you don't notice it until you see <laughs> you everyone see wearing... You see global hypercolor t-shirts around anymore. Loud pink, I love it. <laughs> Um, and that's kind of the most n uh, early 90s, late 80s feeling bit of the film. The rest of it's sort of underwater and timeless. But then suddenly you've got everyone's freaking out about this. And the aliens are going to hurt us as punishment for the Cold War. And not just the Cold War, but they then show... They googled war the same that way that Lilu does in the Fifth Element. Yeah, it is very Fifth Element, and I just checked to see when. Or the Fifth, Fifth Element, Element is very out. this ninety seven. But yeah, if um, if this was all written beforehand, then I do understand that, and maybe Cameron watching the Fifth Element and going, "I could have put it in there. People would have got it." No, nah, it was um, years before, and the Fifth <laughs> Element is definitely riffing on this. Yeah. Um, but that uh, that sense of we've seen what you're doing, and we don't like it. Uh, it, it's very focused in this on uh, nuclear explosions. Yeah. It's it's um, test after test after test is my guess because there isn't much in the way of footage of actual nuclear explosions that were sent in hostility. Hmm. Thank Christ. I think that would basically turn it into a giant snuff film. Yeah, indeed. And then there's horrible shots of... Like the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia and, and concentration camps and just horrendous war crimes and, and just war in general. I don't know. War, war is so horrific that war crimes is like, well, you were going outside the margins of what is acceptable for war. But it's just, it's horrendous and it makes us look terrible as a species. And again, this comes back to contact and you humans are capable of such uh, uh, beautiful dreams and such terrible nightmares. It's sci-fi author looking at the bigger picture and then the bigger picture, which I'm very familiar with. This is most definitely our territory. And earlier in the film, you actually missed this bit. There's a bunch of news footage of people that's um, just talking about uh, the nuclear war that's going on and, and the whole the, 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 the mutually assured destruction and the... Well, not nuclear war that's going on, just the idea that warheads might get launched at any moment because of the hostilities between America and Russia. And these just regular people on, on the street are like, oh, it's just, what can you do? You feel so powerless. 
And uh, one of the guys is like, I try not to think about it, which is a really, it's a simplified but very accurate way of describing how we react to huge looming threats. Yeah. It's so huge, we can't do anything about it. We either obsess about it or we try not to think about it. Mm. Which is why it's risky putting this stuff in big movies, because you're asking people to think, to think about, about it. it. And also, I did notice from the Wikipedia page, I don't know if this is accurate, but apparently this is set in 1994. Yeah, it's slightly futuristic. Yeah, so with, between this and Judgment Day, that rather suggests that Cameron himself was somewhat hung up on the idea of global destruction oh, absolutely, in the yeah. early 90s. It's so 80s. It's so 60s as a, as a we can duck and cover yeah. type scenario. But he's a child of the Cold War himself. Mm. So it, it stands to reason that, that that fear is something that he's going to want to explore. Mm. But we've said this before about filmmakers. If you keep having to go back to the same thing over and over again, that rather suggests that whatever you're doing to try and explore it isn't working for you. Yeah. And... Like, you know, Duck and Cover is the, I'm sure we've said this during the T2 show, Duck and Cover is the exemplary prevailing feeling of the era of we'll be able to survive this. And it was just keep calm shit that the government was shoveling into America to prevent mass panic. Because people have to feel like there is something mm. that they can do. But by the 80s, I think we'd all, especially Generation X, had grown savvy to, we're not going to survive this if it comes to a that. That's why Terminator 2, with its vision of, of nuclear destruction, really shook people up because it, it, put it, it put it very much in our faces. And this is kind of a precursor and at the same time postscript to that because this bit was not revealed until after T2. And it baffles me that he just took it all out. Like he cut 30 minutes out. And it feels like, isn't that the point of the movie? Isn't like the, 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 the conflict on the surface is mirrored by the conflict below the surface? Yeah. And that the aliens themselves are kind of chiding us. Mm -hmm. And it made me think of, there's a bit in uh, uh, T2 when John Connor and uh, the T-800 are waiting uh, by a food stand. And two little kids are fighting with guns and going, bang, you're dead. Ah, I got you. No, I got you. And then John mutters to himself, we're not going to make it. Humans, I mean. And then the mom comes along and goes, I'll bang your fucking heads together. And it's like, that's what the aliens are going to do. They're going to bang our heads together, effectively creating one great tragedy that we can all mourn together. I mean, a whole bunch of different, like Thanos and the, 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 the villain in Mission Impossible Fallout wanted to do. The villain in uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters. It's become kind of a, what we're going to do is hurt you a bit so you don't hurt yourselves a lot. It's a, a manifestation of the deeply held desire, whether conscious or not, of I want there to be a God and I want him to be not entirely benevolent because we fucked up and we need a bit of punishment to straighten us out. Discipline, that's what we need. Yeah. Uh, I don't agree. <laughs> and I also think relying on that to straighten things out is the fastest way to descend to the bottom. I'm actually horrified right now at the thought that this, if this actually happened in real life, if aliens came down or had been here for a long while and they created massive tidal waves that specifically struck New York, San Francisco and Los Angeles, the folks in middle America would go, well, that's what they get for being coastal elites. They wouldn't care. Not everyone in middle America, but a lot of Fox News watchers, a lot of folks who are refusing to be vaccinated would be like, meh, doesn't bother me. 
I'm not getting hit by tidal waves. It's really uncomfortable. The idea that, that you can separate yourself that much from the rest of humanity and say, what happens to other people isn't happening to me. Yeah. But that's, again, that's a coping living mechanism that we've grown up with. Because ultimately, if you feel everything from... If you feel everyone's pain all the time, you go mad and kill yourself. But the reason that the aliens decide not to hurt us is uh, Bud's message to uh, Lindsay and uh, the rest of them that uh, he's, he's going to sacrifice himself and he knew that, that was, it was going to be a one-way ticket. And... Uh, they are moved by his selflessness. Which is a sweet kind of ending. But effectively what it says is, because we care about each other in a sort of an immediate sense, like if you care about your friends and your estranged wife, then maybe there is hope for us. Which is effectively the same thing as the fifth element. That the the fact that love is there, even in the midst of all this destruction, is the potential for improvement. Hmm. And they even uh, use this in Armageddon. It's like Harry is sacrificing his life at the end of that film for everyone on Earth, but a lot of it is because he's like, yeah, I've got to make sure AJ marries my daughter so that the the, the line may continue. And it's it's very much got to protect like, the breeder pair. Got to protect. Like the, my immediate, because again, it's much easier to to get people to fight uh, in war by saying your immediate family are endangered, rather than people several countries away that you don't know are endangered. Yeah, and in a way, that is kind of how you manage large groups of of social structures. If everybody is watching out for the people who are immediately close to them, mm. then everybody's watching out for each other. And in theory, that should mean that we are all protected by the people who are closest to us. Unfortunately, what ends up happening is people pull strings to make it look like you're protecting the people who are closest to you, but who you're protecting them from is that next group over. Yeah. And that unfortunately brings me back to Middle America being like, well, I'm not getting tidal waved. My family isn't getting or tidal waved. Or wildfired or earthquaked. My estranged wife is not getting uh, tidal waved. So this is none of my fucking business. And that is a depressing thought. And we don't really want to necessarily leave you on that. I admire the intentions behind the thinking of it. I don't admire the fact that he hacked it out and didn't put it in the theatrical film that most people saw. It feels like this is, like, just own this. This is what the story is about. Make it about that. The parts that really needed cutting back and speeding up and trimming were actually the middle, where there's a lot of waiting, a lot of underwater, a lot of discussion about what's going on. You can trim that back and maintain this aliens bit. The It actually doesn't take that long. Mm. It's just that if you combine all the Cold War stuff, that creates a theme, a subtext, a B-plot, or in this case, the overarching spirit of the movie. But as we've, uh, as we've said, with Aliens, with Terminator 2, Cameron was prone to cutting some of the most important stuff out of his films for general release. He didn't do it with Titanic, and although a, a, an extended version of Avatar came out, there was nothing in there particularly that I felt would, made the film massively better. 
It did, however, make for a great, hey, stick it out in the theatres again with stuff you've not seen before. See if we can just run those crazy numbers up a little bit more. And it is really, really important to note that Lindsay is based on the producer Gail Ann Hurd, the woman who brought the Terminator into being. I think uh, James Cameron was sleeping on her floor while they were you know, developing and filming the Terminator. They ended up married. They were married before the Abyss. They separated during pre-production of the Abyss, and they divorced in February 1989, two months after principal photography, but before the release of the Abyss. So this movie is about a couple that get back together after fighting when one of them makes a supreme gesture to the other. And it's got this sweet kind of, you know, you took me back feel to it, which was not mirrored in real life. They could not maintain this. Yeah. Incidentally, the, the extent to which Lindsay is based on Gail Ann Hurd, every time she flashed up in the interviews, I thought for a brief second it was Mary, Mary Elizabeth, Elizabeth Mastro Antonio. And then I thought, no, it's not because she didn't do any of these. But he, he does not go a long time between relationships. He divorced his first wife, Sharon Williams, in uh, 1984 and married Gail Ann Hurd in 1985. It is so weird. James Cameron married Sharon Williams in 1978, which is the year Sharon Williams, who later became Sharon Shaw, was born. School of Movies is brought to you by Patreon. And our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so another massive thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Ungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. Why they don't destroy it is because Bud has been willing to sacrifice his life to save his compatriots and his wife up, up in the ship, you know. Whether one has a different appreciation of what that moment means as a result of 
I don't know, understanding the characters more, having different resonances with respect to what the NTIs are all about and what that final meeting between the two species means. Um, it's hard to say, uh, to see what people write and say about, about this version of the, of the picture. One of the most exciting things for me was to see all these strange manifestations going on right in front of my eyes and know that we, we created this, we made it happen. We came to this, this desolate site in, um, in Gaffney, South Carolina, and for you know, a few weeks we created something that was totally unique. We had been through something incredibly demanding, arduous, but also momentous. So I created little pins that were life preservers that said SS Abyss, Survivor. I don't think there's anybody that would want to do it again, myself included. Son of Abyss? No way. Absolutely not. I think there are relatively few people that are not happy that they did it. To have said, I was there, I saw what happened, I was part of it. I grew to compare everything else to, to doing the Abyss. And, uh, you know, everything is cake. Believe me, I mean, you walk around, you hear actors bitching and moaning, and people bitching and moaning about this, I say, Fuck you, I did the abyss. It was fun trying to shoot a movie underwater, and I never, ever thought of, uh, of uh, that stuff we did underwater as being difficult or really hard work. To me, it was exciting, and there was, a, there was uh, something new about it. I guess you get the impression some of it was great, some of it was hell, so. It's trying to understand it, which maybe I never will completely, but, you know, it was not, I never, I have not regretted the experience for a second, you know, even when I was down there, no matter what was going on. You know, the irony is Ed Harris has probably got, you know, hundreds of hours underwater, but it was all in a tank. He learned in a lake, he's probably never been in the ocean, which is really a shame, because the ocean is really beautiful. The Abyss, as I've said, was renamed The Abuse by the crew. This shoot stands as testament to how not to treat people. How skipping over the parts where a producer and director prioritise the safety and well-being of their team can lead to near-death experiences. And it wasn't done in pursuit of money, but art. Cameron is one of those artists respected for his obsessive dedication, but here he forced everyone else to live at his intensity, and it nearly killed several of them. He was so preoccupied with his story of the deep blue that he lost all sight of the thing that was supposed to bind the story together, which is selflessness. Bud volunteers to disarm the nuke to protect the people he loves and keep them out of danger, even though he knows it will mean his death. This leaves The Abyss as a sad, angry tale of a shoot gone horribly wrong, a film barely rescued in the edit to create something audiences were puzzled by and then restored in a way that pleased fans, but even the creator admitted didn't work the way he intended it to on the printed page. When they showed the film to test audiences, uh, the bit with the alien at the end, the bit with the aliens, turned up the most often in their uh, lists of things they didn't like. But it also turned up most often in lists of things they did like. And then when the special edition came out and they showed that to test audiences, it was the same, but even more prevalent. I'm reminded of the itchy and scratchy focus group. It is in incredibly polarizing, but ultimately with art, you're caught between it being a product that will displease people or art that will displease people. But at the same time, a 
a product that will please people and art that will please people to a great degree and not just a little bit. They specifically picked that moment out. It's troublesome. But isn't that the whole point of art? You put the troublesome in. Taking it out makes it a product. And that's not to say he's obliged to keep this theme in there as an artist, but because he removed it and didn't replace it with anything, you then begin to question what the film at a base level is about. Diminishing that sense of intensity. Like, he made everyone meet him on the intensity scale during filming, but then he let the whole audience off and said, no, you know what, you get the much gentler version of this, the much quicker version of this, we'll be over much sooner, you'll be home by the time The Simpsons comes on. I think it does It does very much depend what you're taking it out for. If you're taking it out because as a creator you genuinely think, no, this is not what I want to, to put across for, from an artistic mm. perspective, that's absolutely fine. This, this uh, tendency of people to shout censorship when a, a video game creator, for mm. example, decides to remove something because they don't think it actually um, it strengthens the, the material. Yeah. That's not necessarily always a commercial decision. Sometimes it is. I understand it. I understand, and I'm not decrying him for taking it out, but the result was that critics were like, why did it suddenly go to aliens? Like, that came out of nowhere, and so did audiences. Because he removed the weight of that sequence, it seemed to take a sudden jarring left turn, as opposed to, oh, I see what he's doing here, which is how the special edition comes through. But even if an HD version becomes widely available for everyone to watch on Disney+, Plus, which I'm assuming will eventually happen... Well, if Amazon Prime have got it, then eventually it's going to have a, a, an outing on other platforms, I yeah. would assume. And it is discovered by a new generation. That still means that 30 years of obscurity at least will have gone by. It's missed its anniversary. It's been hidden away like a shameful mistake. And there is glory in this film that is overshadowed by that shame. And both, I think, need to be brought to the surface, clearing away the oil slick of tiny black beads to finally emerge, for better or worse, into the sunlight. So I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's, School's Out. out.